please open your Bibles to John chapter 1, which is in the New Testament. But if you've read the Old Testament much, if you've read the history of God's people, one of the things you pick up on is that God is always making promises to his people. And he's always making good on those promises that he makes to his people. And that is really astounding when you keep reading and you realize God's people are always blowing it. They're always disobeying. They're they're always worshiping other gods. They're not holding up their end of the bargain in any sense of the word, yet God remains faithful to them. And he holds up his end of the deal and his people's end of the deal. Promise after glorious promise, he does this. Now, one of the things that he promises, and he promises it multiple times, is that he's going to send his spirit. He's going to pour out his spirit. He's even going to put his spirit in the hearts of his people. It's a staggering promise. And so this morning in John's gospel, as we look further at the ministry of John the Baptist in preparing the way for Jesus to come, we're going to see some dots get connected that relate directly to God's promise of sending his spirit to his people and putting his spirit in his people. The, the gospel author John, as we've already noted, is selective about what he includes in his gospel. He's very purposeful. And so he doesn't give us all the details about John the Baptist and his ministry. If we want a a fuller picture of that, uh, we would need to turn to a couple of other gospel accounts. Matthew 3, Luke chapters 1 and 3. But it just so happens that a good summary of those other accounts is found in one of my favorite little resources that we haven't looked at in a long time. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it's not just for kids. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones is the author, and the the tagline of this Bible, which is why it's so great, is that every story whispers his name. And it does such a beautiful job of showing you the integrated whole of Scripture, how God is telling and revealing one story from start to finish. And what uh, Miss Lloyd-Jones does with John the Baptist is uh, in line with all of the rest of of what she does. It's great. It's called Heaven Breaks Through, the account of John the Baptist here. About the same time Jesus was born, another baby was born. His name was John. And God had a special job for him. John was going to get everyone ready for Jesus. The day John was born, his dad knew God's promise to Abraham was coming true. God was sending the rescuer. And he was so happy, he sang a song. Because God loves us with a never-stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, heaven is breaking through. He is sending us a light from heaven to shine on us like the sun, to shine on those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So John grew up and, well, to tell you the truth, he was a bit unusual. He lived in the desert He wore itchy, scratchy outfits made of camel hair. He had a big, big, bushy beard. Hmm. And long, long, scraggly hair. Eh. 
And here is the oddest thing of all. He only ate locusts, short for big, creepy, crunchy grasshoppers, which he dipped in honey, probably to disguise the taste. But God sent John to tell his people something important. Stop running away from God and run to him instead. John said, you need to be rescued. I have good news. The rescuer is coming. Make your hearts ready for him. Yes, get ready because your king is coming back for you. Great crowds listened to John. They were sorry they had sinned and they wanted to stop running away from God. They wanted to be rescued. So John baptized them which means he plunged them in and out of the water. It showed that they wanted to follow God and begin a new life. One day, John was baptizing people in the Jordan River, as usual, when he looked up and saw a man walking down to the water's edge. God spoke quietly to John. This is the one. John's heart leapt. This was the moment he'd been waiting for all his life. Look, John said, as Jesus came down into the water, but his voice came out as a whisper, He couldn't make it any louder. It was all he could do to even speak. The Lamb of God, God's best Lamb, who takes away the sins of the whole world. Will you baptize me too? Jesus asked. Who am I, John asked, to baptize you? It's what God wants me to do, Jesus said. So, John baptized Jesus. Suddenly, it was as if someone had drawn back the curtains in a dark room. As if heaven itself had opened because a beautiful light broke through the clouds and shone down onto Jesus, bathing him in gold. Beads of water glittered and sparkled like tiny diamonds in his hair. A white dove flew down and gently rested on Jesus. And a voice came down from heaven. It was clear and strong and loud so everyone could hear, This is my own son and I love him. I am very pleased with him, God said. Listen to him. Heaven had broken through. The great rescue had begun. And indeed, the great rescue had begun. And part of God's great rescue plan was the sending of his spirit. As we get into our verses this morning... We're going to see some of why that was such a big deal, the sending of his spirit. So I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Not out of a children's Bible, but out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. John chapter 1, 29 through 34, the very words of God. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. May God bless the teaching and the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray and ask for help that we need. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
three in one. Would you come now? Would you be present in this moment? Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to see and be convinced like John the Baptist and like John, the author of this gospel, became convinced that Jesus was the very Son of God? Would you lead us to places where we might believe in him and in believing have life in his name? We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Two big points, two main points this morning for you. They're in the outline that's in your worship folder. We need to look at the Spirit on Jesus, and we need to look at the Spirit in us. And we'll break these down a little further along the way. But first, the Spirit of on Jesus. When you look back on all those promises that God made to His people, you begin to see some very specific promises about the one that He will send to rescue His people. It's mentioned in lots of different ways, and, and at times touting lots of different characteristics about this one that he's going to send, and the roles that this one will fulfill, this rescuer that would come. We find out from Scripture that that he will be a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. We find out that he'll be a king like David, but greater than David. His kingdom's not going to know an end. He will always be on the throne forever and ever. And very often when this rescuer is mentioned and prophesied about in Scripture, a detail that is included about him is that God's Spirit will be on him. Now, read through the Old Testament and you'll see the Spirit of God showing up from time to time, assisting and enabling certain individuals, different prophets to speak the words of God, different priests to intercede for and minister to the people, different kings to rule and to defend God's people. Very often they have an enabling and a presence of God's Spirit. But the important thing to note about all of those enablings and assistings and all of those instances of the presence of the Spirit is that they're all temporary. Those folks are assisted or enabled for a time And then that time comes to an end. But look at how the prophet Isaiah speaks of the presence of the Spirit with the rescuer that the Lord is going to send. It's all over the place in his prophecy. I've picked out three. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come, and this is about the rescuer, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall shall rest upon him. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And Isaiah 61. Here, in the words of the one being sent, words that Jesus would later quote and claim about himself. Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Can you see how the presence of the Spirit with the rescuer, with Jesus, is going to be different? It's what John is getting at in verse 32 of our passage this morning. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, 
and it remained on him. God's doing something new here. And this is, in fact, the one thing God told John the Baptist to be on the lookout for. The Spirit remaining. That will be the indicator to you that this is the one. Now, verse 31 struck me as odd when I read it. And then it struck me as really odd when it got repeated in verse 33 that John the Baptist said he didn't know Jesus. Two times. I myself did not know him. But wait a minute. You're his cousin. You're just a few months older than him. Didn't y'all play together? Didn't you see each other at family get-togethers? How could you not know him? And yes, I'm sure that John the Baptist knew Jesus. I'm sure he could say, oh, look, it's my cousin Jesus. But he didn't know him as Messiah Jesus. He didn't know him as Jesus who is the Christ, and especially not as Jesus who is the Son of God. We see in verse 34, that's the conclusion that he gets to. Because of seeing the Spirit rest and remain on him, this this Jesus who I've known for a long time, oh, now I see. Now I realize he's the very Son of God. And if you remember John's purpose in writing this gospel that I showed you early on, it comes later in chapter 20, verse 31. The whole reason that he's writing these things is that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, that we might believe he is the Son of God and in believing have life in his name. That's what the author of this gospel wants us to see. And here he's showing us how John the Baptist first saw that. How even John the Baptist first came to this conclusion. How John the Baptist came to a place where he could make this declaration that we spent so much time looking at last week. Where he could see him coming from afar and say, Behold the Lamb of God! who takes away the sin of the world. So seeing the Spirit come and remain on Jesus is a big deal for knowing who He is. And it's an obvious prerequisite for the Spirit getting in us, which is our second point. We need to see the Spirit on Jesus so that we can understand how the Spirit gets in us. Jesus has to have the Spirit if He's going to be the one to baptize us with it if we're going to have the Spirit in us. John the Baptist is always faithfully reminding his followers, insisting on the fact that he is not the point. That His whole reason for existence is pointing people to the one who is the point. And one of the ways that he does that is by contrasting his baptism with the baptism of Jesus. John is baptizing with water. His was a baptism that had to do with repentance of sin. And it was a big deal. John's baptism with water was a big deal. It was important. Because to receive his baptism was saying, in essence, I know that I'm not okay. 
I know that things are not right with me. I know I need to be rescued. Now think about this. This is why so many folks took issue with what he was doing. Think about those pious and religious Jews, right? Making all the appropriate sacrifices, observing all the appropriate days and rituals. For them to be able to admit that even with all that stuff, I know I'm not okay. Y'all, that's big. It is to come to the recognition that we saw a couple of weeks back, we were using the assurance of pardon that came out of Hebrews 10, where it talks about we know that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't do anything to take away sin. We know that. Right? That's the recognition that is required to receive John's water baptism. That's what gets folks prepared for the coming of the rescuer, is getting them to see and admit that they're not okay that they need a Savior, that they need to be rescued. So John's baptism was important. But John the Baptist knew, however important his baptism was, it paled in comparison to the baptism Jesus would bring. Do you ever watch the game show Family Feud? Right? The, the old ones are so much better than the new ones. But it's where 100 people are surveyed. Right? They're asked a question. And contestants have to guess the answers. And they're always listed in the order of their popularity, right? How many folks said, the most folks said the top answer. And, and the bottom ones are always these obscure things. And they're so hard to guess. And very often they never get guessed. They just have to be revealed at the end when they ran out of chances to guess it. If 100 people were surveyed and they were asked the question, what did Jesus come to do? Why did Jesus come? I know you'd probably, unfortunately, top of the list, right? Oh, he came to teach, right? He came to be an example. He came to show us the way, right? I'm sure, though, that if they asked any of you, right, good students of the word that you are, you'd be able to say, yes, he came to die for our sins, right? Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And then we'd get down to the bottom, to that last obscure thing that nobody's going to guess. Because probably only one in a hundred would say, Jesus came to baptize us with the Spirit. Though obscure, it's one that we could all be a little more familiar with. Because it connects the dots. Right? It connects the promises God makes in Scripture of, I'm going to send my Spirit, I'm going to pour out my Spirit, I'm going to put my Spirit in you, with how it actually happens. See, the Spirit comes to us from the Father through Jesus. We did the Nicene Creed this morning. We picked that a couple of weeks ago, thinking, oh, this will be good because of how it mentions the the, the divinity of the Son, the eternality of the Son, because we've already looked at that. In John 1, he was with God, he was God, right? That was good. Um, so that's why we picked it. <clears throat> but God knew that we'd be getting to this point in John this morning and emphasizing this part about the Spirit and Jesus baptizing us with the Spirit, right? And so we saw there uh, in the Nicene Creed, right? The Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, Right? That's how 
he gets here. So when God promises in Joel chapter 2, right, there's coming a day when I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. When he promises in Ezekiel 36, which we'll get to in just a minute, this beautiful passage, he promises to put his spirit in us, right? John's pointing us to the fact that it's Jesus. Jesus is the means by which this happens. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And so I want to point out three things to you, three important things about this spirit baptism. Technically, it's four. I just remembered because I threw one in there. But I gave you three in your outline. Three things it helps us to do. helps us to see Jesus. It unites us to Jesus and conforms us to Jesus, right? When we see uh, that, that Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, here are three of the things that are going on. He helps us to see Jesus. John the Baptist didn't know Jesus until the Spirit came. Right? He knew cousin Jesus. He didn't know Messiah Jesus until the Spirit came. Right? It's the coming of the Spirit that enables John the Baptist to see exactly who this is that we're dealing with. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Rescuer. And certainly he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't see that. He didn't know and understand that until the Spirit came. And the exact same thing is true for you and me. We might know of Jesus. We might intellectually know about him. But scripture is very clear over and over again. None of us saw him. None of us sought him or looked for him. Our eyes were blinded by the enemy to his glory. We could not see him until the Spirit comes. Until the Spirit opens our eyes, softens our hearts. And by now, many of you are very familiar with that. You're thinking, yes, I've got this. We're thinking that the Spirit has come. But we're probably just thinking about, well, the Spirit, well, He just came. It's what He did. And we're glad that He did. But we haven't necessarily thought about Jesus being the channel through whom the Spirit comes to us. Jesus baptizing us with the Spirit as he does. And when he does, that's the very thing that enables us to see Jesus in the first place as our rescuer, as our Messiah. To see and to embrace him as he's freely offered in the gospel. And when we Embrace him to receive and trust all that he's done for us, sacrificing himself for us, taking our sins upon himself and dying for them. Our baptism in the Spirit enables us to see Jesus. And when we do, when all of that happens, when we place our faith and our trust in what Jesus has done for us, that brings us to our second little sub-point here. The baptism of the Spirit unites us to him. We see him. We embrace him. The Spirit unites us to him. I came across a verse this week that I'm sure I must have read bunches of times. But this week in light of these verses, it took on a whole new light. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, speaking very much about the Spirit and about spiritual gifts. But here's the work of the Spirit here. Verse 12, For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, 
we were all baptized into one body. Now, we're pretty familiar with language of the body, right? Baptized into one body, right? But it's just too easy to think about that language and think about the concept of the body as simply just a group of people, right? Here we are. We're a body of believers. We're a body of people together, right? Common beliefs, common purpose, all that good stuff. But the meaning here is deeper and it's richer. It's not just a group of believers. No, baptized into one body, right? That one body is Christ. It's his body we're baptized into. It's not just that he he makes us a group of people and we call it the body. No, we are baptized into, united united to his body. That's the reason that we exist. Not just because we happen to think and believe the same things. No, we exist as a body because we've all been united to the same body. And if you've been united to the body of Christ, and if we've been united to the same body, then we are together and we belong to him and we belong to each other. Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit, unites us to him. We're permanently attached to him, intertwined, connected. Right Now, here's that fourth thing. This is as good a place to throw it in as any. Under this, still under the second subpoint, I guess. Put it wherever you want. Spirit baptism is not some secondary event that happens to super spiritual Christians. It's what a lot of people want to do with it. Oh, you've been baptized with the Spirit. Oh, you've received the Spirit. You've received sometimes called the second blessing, right? Jesus baptizing us with the Spirit is not a second and separate event, separate from our salvation, right? And and, and that teaching normally comes with, oh, well, then you've got to have these miraculous gifts and signs to then prove that you have the Spirit, right? You can speak in tongues, you can heal, prophesy. Oh, that's the proof that you've received the baptism of the Spirit. No, I'll tell you what the proof that you've received the baptism of the Spirit is, is that you've been united to Jesus, Right? That's the proof that you've been baptized with the Spirit. You've been united to Jesus. Now, that might seem a little ambiguous and hard to prove. What's the proof that I've been united to Jesus? Well, now we're to our third and official subpoint of this. The proof that you've been united to Jesus, the proof you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, is you begin to look like Jesus. Right? You're being conformed to His image. There's the proof in the pudding that you've been baptized in the Spirit, that you've been united to Jesus. You start to look like Jesus, right? And so here is where we've got to go to this beautiful passage again to Ezekiel 36. I hope you're not getting tired of Ezekiel 36 because I've taken you here a dozen times at least, but it's always worthwhile, right? And a couple of paragraphs actually would be really good, but we're just going to look at three verses. You go back and read the larger uh, context here later. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Here's part of the promise, right? God's promising it way in advance. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus baptizes us with the spirit. He removes the barriers to our belief and also removes the barriers to our right behavior and puts in place the help that we need for obedience. When he puts his spirit in us, the spirit causes our obedience. That's his work. That's what he's doing. Jesus baptizes us with the spirit and the spirit causes our obedience. So, do you see how Jesus' baptism with the Spirit is the perfect complement to John's baptism with water? Right? John said, be baptized with this water. You need to repent from your sins. Jesus' baptism with the Spirit comes and reveals to us and shows us how Jesus perfectly obeyed in our place. And how he paid the penalty for all of our failure and rebellion. What a perfect compliment, one to another. The water baptism with the spirit baptism. And even the water baptism that we practice today, when we baptize an infant who's yet to place their faith in Christ, or when we baptize an adult who has come later in life uh, to place their faith in Christ and was never baptized before, the water in that baptism... It doesn't have any magical powers. The water isn't doing anything there except getting the person wet. But what it's doing is it's pointing us to the Spirit and the Spirit's baptism. It's the Spirit who affects the supernatural change. The, the, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are physical signs that point to spiritual realities. Even as we would come to the table this morning we're being reminded with a physical reminder of a spiritual reality we're being reminded of the fact that we've been united to Christ but it's more than just a reminder if you come to this table with believing hearts this morning, it's not just a reminder, it's a participation in your union with Christ. He's on His throne in heaven. We're here. When we come by faith to this table supernaturally, we are participating in the fact that we are united to Him. Let's pray before we partake. Father, thank you for this reminder.